Amen. Um, I want to start by taking a, a little bit of a test. I'm pretty sure it's a test you guys are all going to pass, so don't, don't worry. Um, just It's a common sense test. There are causes and effects in this world, right? Um, consequences for actions, both good and bad. And so let's, let's say hypothetically I had a glass jar and I were to hold it over a concrete pad and drop it. What, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to break. Yeah, see, I told you. Easy test. Let's say, hypothetically, I had poured gasoline out and then had a spark by the gasoline. It's going to catch fire, going to catch fire right? And so there's, there's consequences or things that we can look at in life and say, there's cause and effect. There's an expectation. Um, a little bit more of a difficult scenario, but still simple. If you're a gardener and you plant seeds, what do you hope to happen? Yeah, you hope they grow, right? The, there's expectation, like it should bear fruit, there should be something to come of it. And, and so we see this in, in the world that there is um, the planting of something, the expectation, the dropping of something, the expectation. And so James, as a pastor, has an expectation from believers. And so he's saying, you guys are going through difficult times, I want you first to count it all joy. No matter what you're going through, not that you have joy in everything, but that Jesus has accomplished something so magnificent that you have joy. You can have joy through everything. And in that, having accepted, there's an expectation from James that having received the word of God, you would go and do. And so if you were to say for James, what is theologically most important It would be that you know the word of God, because once you know the word of God, there's an expectation that you would do the word of God. And so there's knowing and doing. Does that that make sense? So like if I were to have that glass out and drop it, you expect it to break. And for James as a pastor, if you have said that you know the word of God, he expects you to do the implications of the word of God. Pretty simple. And, and I would argue that's probably the most therapeutic thing for you when you're in a season of trial and suffering. Um, how, how are we doing so far? Are we doing good? Okay. So let's, let's read verse, um, verse 19 real quick. And then I want to use 19 kind of real quickly as a formula to help us unpack the rest of today's passage. Uh, James writes this. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But do you see where he, he says, know this? So for James, we could say that that is his preeminent hope or I don't want to say prominent desire, but he wants you to know Jesus and know. So for him, wisdom is paramount to success. Wisdom is paramount to being able to in, instill a Christian life. Wisdom or knowing is what he's driving after. And very practically for those of us who have ever had feelings we think of feelings kind of like they, they come and they go, right? But, but if you know something, that, that knowing that something anchors you in that something. Or hopefully it does. And so knowledge becomes an anchor for James. And he says, know this, my beloved brothers. There's three things he says. Number one, quick to hear. Okay? Which sounds a little odd, right? Because when you're mad, well, you want to be quick to speak. Quick to hear. The second one, he says, slow to speak. And then the third one, slow to anger. So James is writing to a church as a pastor, and he's saying, I want you to know this, beloved brothers. 
you're going through temptation and trials. You've lost your job. You've had loved ones murdered. I want you to be quick to hear, so to speak, so to anger. So when we look at quick to hear, what does James want us to hear? In James 1.3, he wrote, For you know, this isn't up there on there, I just have it abbreviated, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast. So, so the expectation for James is be quick to hear, but as you're, as you're hearing, you're actually receiving something. And that is knowledge. And then he says in James 1.5 that if you lack any wisdom, let him ask God. So be quick to hear, to know, and to have wisdom. So James is really trying to drive home the mental aspect of our Christian belief. Does that, that make sense? It almost seems too simple. But that's why I love James, is it's a simple book, very practical, very pastoral, is our emotions can be fleeting, but hopefully our knowledge and understanding of God's word anchors us in that moment, and that's why we can have all joy. So he says, be quick to hear. In James 3, he kind of unpacks for us what wisdom is. I have it up there, and I want to walk through. He highlights eight things that he defines wisdom as. I'm going to read it, but wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. So we say, what does James want us to know? If we were to say, what is the definition biblically of wisdom? That's what he wants us to know, is that there's a purity, a peace from God's knowledge. There's a gentleness, but I want you to just... Say number four real quick. Open to reason. When, when you, if you're like me, when you guys are angry, like, what is it? Is it, is it easy to be reasonable? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm right. You're wrong. And, uh, yeah. And as soon as you accept that, we're, we're better off. And so there's, there's an openness to wisdom that he has there, a, a mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And if we use that same thing, we can apply that to the second thing that James says when he says, be slow to speak. Because if we're, if, if we're across from a person who's hurting, for, for example, and then we're quick to hear or to listen, we're practicing good listening skills, we're going to be slow to speak because the first thing that we speak is that of purity or that which brings about peace. But again, if you go to number four, if you put yourself across from someone in pain, if you're open to reason, then you're hearing what they're saying. And that might even be a different worldview. It might be someone who says, you know, I don't think there's absolute truth. I believe in relativity. And you can say, well, explain that to me. Well, how, how so? How could there be relativity? How could there? You could begin to have a dialogue with them because you're open to reason, right? That's one of the reasons I, I love what James is saying is if, if you know God's wisdom, you're not going to be frightened of other people's faith and you're going to be open to dialogue with them and not feel like you have to combat what they're saying because you're anchored in the Christian faith. So if somebody says, I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that's not going to upset you because you know that Jesus is the Son of God. If they say, I don't think Jesus died on the cross, that's not going to upset you. You can begin to unpack, like, okay, why don't you believe that? What, what is it in your belief structure that causes you to believe that? And so we can, from a very practical standpoint, 
take what James is saying and apply it even towards an evangelistic, if not a personal. Does, does that make sense? So what I'm saying is I think sometimes we as Christians, we get defensive because our knowledge base, our foundation isn't as, it can't sustain the arguments that we find ourselves in. It's not as robust to have the conversation that we, we have. Or even more frightening to that is we don't enter into the conversations that we should. I had a conversation, this was probably about, I don't know, maybe five years ago or ten years ago at this point, with another pastor. And that pastor was in sin. Uh, viewed pornography, um, did other type of stuff that pastors shouldn't do. And I laid it before him what Scripture says. He knew what Scripture said. And he was actually in a position where he counseled people uh, that were going through addiction. And he said, but you know, when, I, when it comes to the pattern of addiction I have, I just I leave that alone. So when it came to, like, if somebody was struggling with pornography, he would just set that aside and not interact with it. And I said, do you, do you realize what Satan is doing? Like, he, he's enslaved and bound you in such a way that you're leaving people enslaved and bound. And, and so there's this, this lack of openness or this reason. And so for us, if we've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ and been set free, we can step into every situation, even if we've yet to be set free, and still point people to Jesus. And, and so this pastor didn't have a conversation with people simply because you could say he didn't know the gospel yet. Practically, the gospel hadn't set him free, but he was believing a lie that said, until you experience perfection, you can't speak into every scenario. It'd be like if somebody was arguing with their wife, and I was like, you know, I argued with my wife yesterday, so I probably shouldn't say anything. I mean, that's like a, a daily occurrence, right? I mean, like everyone who's ever been married, like, you listen, you, were, you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have said that. Like, I, I know I was arguing with my wife yesterday. I was wrong, but just because I was wrong yesterday, two wrongs don't make a right. And so for, for James, he wants us to understand what wisdom is. And then that third thing he says is be slow to anger, which I think this is probably, last week Mac talked about deception. Anger is probably one of the things that most impacts Christians. Be because when we're angry, like when we're arguing with somebody, you're mounting the defensive, right? And, and it feels, you feel righteous. That's what anger does, is it makes us feel right. It makes us feel righteous. It makes us feel powerful, larger than life, and we're able then to attack. Yeah, Jesus was angry. He flipped tables. And so he says in verse 20, that we, should, shouldn't, we should be slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there's something seductive in anger that says you are more righteous than you are. Probably in our society, um, I hesitate to step into this, but feel like I need to, the way where we most feel righteousness out of anger is probably in the political sphere. No matter what side you're on, we step into a righteous argument. We're not slow to speak, and we're not hearing. Because it feels good to be right right? And, and so what James is saying is be slow to speak, slow to anger, and be careful when you're, when you're angry because you're clothing yourself in a righteousness. And, and when you understand how that happens, you begin to understand like, okay, wh why I'm prone to anger is, is practically probably because I'm hurt, 
and I need to defend myself so that I don't continue to be hurt. And so there's actually a healthy response in some ways to be anger, but it's not the response that we see biblically, especially when it comes to our cultural norms and the way they're pursuing a sense of righteousness. So one of the healthiest things for us might be to understand how that, does that make sense how anger closes us in righteousness? Is that, is that confusing? We got some, I mean, we could unpack that if we needed to. Does that make sense? You guys are like, you brought in politics. I'm not saying anything now. I felt like I did it in a graceful way. Like, I didn't say anybody was right or wrong. Yeah. How do we know whether it's the anger of man or the anger of God? Ooh, that's a good question. Does he ever give us anger? I think so. Um, I think, so at the very end, James says the purest form is care for widows and orphans. And I think when you see widows and orphans um, being unjustly abused, I think there should be a, a righteous anger, um, a concern. So I think, I think that there is a righteous anger that we can experience. Like anger isn't necessarily evil or bad. There is a healthy response to it. Um, but it's, it's probably more uncommon than common. And anger is not the bad thing. It's the methodology right. behind fixing it. Right. Because anger, when you say, like, is the anger from God? Like, like it's, a, it's an emotion. It's, it's a good thing. We just yeah. can't be deceived in how we, like everybody these days is feeling something. Yeah, so here. Like, it's not bad to feel what you're feeling. Right. The methodology of fixing that. Is right, wrong. right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, so the methodology there, but so like if you, if you were to, if someone were to break into my house and attack my wife and my kids, I'm going to be angry about that. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, that's such a, like, I, there's going to be uh, um, um, an upswelling of, of anger and even a, a need to protect them, rightfully so. And I would say, like, if I didn't protect them, God would probably view me in a negative light. Not, not view me in a negative light, but my actions wouldn't be as a protector how God would want a husband to behave. And, and so, so I, think, I think that there is a case for righteous anger, um, but we need to be careful probably the way that we practice it, especially in the context of this church. You've got to think like they had their, their loved ones murdered by the government in some instances by their peer group with, with Jews that were persecuting the church. And James is saying, um, be slow to anger. So... And I think practically when you understand therapeutically, the anger is like an insulator that prevents us from grieving. And so pastorally, he's saying, hey, I understand why you want to be angry because you're hurt, but you need to let down that anger so that we can work on that grief that you need to process. Because ultimately, um, God's called you to love your neighbor. So does that make sense? But we all, because we're clothed in sin and shame, want to feel a sense of righteousness and anger is the fastest way to feel that sense of righteousness and so that's why like we like that's why we like champion causes does that make sense that's good you're like i shouldn't have come to the first <laughs> okay uh so he says be slow to anger and then in verse 21 he says therefore Put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So he's saying since we know, now we do, and this is what we do. 
We put away filthiness, wickedness. Uh, he's doing this. What I love between James and John is there's so much similarity, so much interweaving. In John chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 6, um, the apostle John writes, Whoever says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So James is trying to put us in a Christian walk or identification with Jesus or consistency with saying this is how Jesus walked. This is how you should walk. And so he continues in an analogy to help us understand this. In verse 20 says, he says, but doers, but be doers of the word. So there's that again, since you know, now do. And not only hearers deceiving yourself, there's that deception. And so the reason I want us to think of the anger is because that's probably the greatest context in which I see Christians and myself deceived. I have learned that my emotional response personally and for me is not the most accurate response. I've almost had to learn to not respond when I'm emotionally involved. I have to step back because when I'm emotionally involved, the clarity just isn't there. My first response isn't. So my personality type is the type that when my authority is challenged, like I want to I want to drop the hammer on you. Like I, I want your world to be I'm not the person who initially steps into mercy or grace when my authority is challenged. Like I wanna want you to feel the pain of what you've just done. So I have to step back because I realize that I'm deceiving myself and what's the best response. And so He's saying, don't deceive yourself. And then he gives us this beautiful analogy in 23. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, look at this. He says, he is like a man who looks intently in his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. So it's an incredible analogy when you really understand what James is saying here. Most of us, a few of you might, but most of us don't look in a mirror to view our perfections. I mean, there's a few narcissists that are like, oh my gosh, they're so beautiful. Most of us, we use a mirror to view our imperfections, right? The first thing you do is you wake up in the morning, man, I got, I got bed, bed hair. Like you went to bed with wet hair, so it's really messed up. You got a little bit of a, a drool. There was one time I was driving, um, this was like 10 years ago, and had interacted with like 40 or 50 people. It was like four in the afternoon, and I went like this, and I realized, I didn't comb my hair this morning. <laughs> like, I forgot to look in the mirror. <laughs> and, and I was a little embarrassed because, I, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? It's 4 o'clock in the day. You've already been at work for almost 8 hours. And, you know, so, so most of us, like, when we look in the mirror, we're viewing our imperfections. Could you imagine, like, if you looked in the mirror, you got bad hair. Or, or maybe it's lunch, you looked in the mirror and you've got mustard that's drooling down your lip or you, you just, you, you don't look the way you want to look. You walk away and then step into a large crowded room of like 100 people. How, how do you think you would feel? Pretty exposed, right? And so James is using a beautiful analogy. He's like, you can't look into God's word and not feel exposed and then walk away as if you've forgotten everything. And so James wants us to understand the implications of what the gospel does is it reveals to us our true nature, that we are sinful in need of the cross. And if that happens, like you can't walk away and you'd be horrified. 
And, and it, like, if, if you were to like, man, I've been walking around with mustard on my face for like the last hour because lunch was an hour and a half ago and nobody's told me that I got mustard smeared. All, like, there, there's a humiliation that you feel. And so James is saying like the word of God allows you to see clearly who you are and you can't walk away from it. And so our sin is exposed because God's word but he, he gives us some grace in verse 25. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer he acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, so James has cemented this knowledge for us. We know what the word of God is. Now we should do what the word of God is. And so I want to I finish in the last two verses with a practical test. How, do you guys have any comments so far? Do you have any questions? Make sense? Okay. So in, in 26 and 27, that's what I love. James is very practical. Sometimes I think we make it more difficult than we should. But he gives us this test. Like if, if we want to know how we're doing, he says if anyone thinks he's religious. So here's the test. If you think you're religious, do you think you love Jesus? Then, and, you, you, and does not bridle his tongue. So he's saying, if you're quick to speak, like if you spew hatred from your mouth, if you tell your neighbors things that are awful, or if you, if you do that which you can't from your mouth, then what you've effectively done is you've deceived your heart, and your religion, or this person's religion, is worthless. So the first test, because we know that even Jesus said, from the heart we, we speak, and James, later on in verse 3, says that the tongue can set a fire to a, fire, uh, to, to a forest. And so the tongue simply confesses that's what's in the heart. And so if we think that we are Christians, then it comes back to, is our tongue, does it speak grace and mercy? Which is a convicting and challenging question, right? So, so first what he's saying is, what's in your heart? There's the test. Just like if we drop it, Right? So in our area, one of the ways that the tongue is not bridled the most is probably through gossip. I can't tell you how many times I've heard evil things of me <laughs> through, through gossip. And, and so, so sometimes it's not even us saying it, it's us saying, hey, listen, I'm, I'm not going to listen to this, okay? I, I, I love them, I care for them, I know you, you, you're, you were hurt by them or whatever, but I'm not going to hear what you have to say about this person. It's not so much us saying it sometimes, it is allowing other people to say it, and they think we've accepted it. So there's a, a bridling of a tongue, or if we might even say, which I don't think this room struggles with it, so I feel safe to say, what we do on social media. There's a, a bridling of a tongue there, because it's really easy to blast out a narrative that doesn't confess who and what Jesus is. And so for James, he's saying, I want you to have almost a monolithic message out of your mouth which is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's the first test. Can you bridle your tongue? And then he says something that's crazy beautiful in 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled. So in its purest form, this is what God wants from you. That the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Isn't that incredible? In its purest form, not in its only form, but in its purest form, if you say you are who you say you are, that you love Jesus, forgiven on the cross, then at some point in your Christian walk, there should be concern and care for those who can't care for themselves. And who are those most vulnerable? Well, widows with no family to care for them, or orphans who don't have an ability to make a job. That is our faith 
in its purest form. So we know Jesus, and then we do what the gospel has commanded us to do. We keep his commandments. Practically, those of you who understand, understand therapy, like one of the quickest ways out of pain and grief is to go and rehab. Does that make sense? So, so he's, he's saying, I know you're going through suffering and trials. What Satan wants you to do is stay in that suffering and trial. And what I'm saying is that you can still proclaim the gospel through your actions. Your trials and your suffering don't define who you are. The victory you have in Jesus does. And so if Satan can get you to stay in a spot because of whatever pain he's inflicted, then the battle's won. But if you can still live out the implication of the gospel, then we demonstrate functionally the power of the gospel that love is greater than sin and death, and then we care for those who can't care for themselves. So in its purest form, but not its only form. Does that make sense? Okay? And then he says, this one is probably our greatest challenge, is to keep oneself unstained from the world. But what I love about this is there's no escapism. And so he's saying, how's your heart? Are you speaking words of grace? Are you caring for those out of grace? And in that, in living in the world, and speaking to your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, and serving the widows who don't know Jesus, are you being unstained from the world? Which is a challenge. And for most of us, it's not that we're hanging out at the bars, or we're not, you know, we're not going to places that we shouldn't. Probably the way we probably struggle the most is through our media consumption. And so we put thoughts and ideas into our head that normally we shouldn't or we wouldn't, or we watch things at home that there's no way we would watch on Sundays. For me, one of the greatest filters is when I watch this with my kids in the room. There's so much. They're like, no, no, like even commercials. <laughs> like, like, I'm like, ah, I can't believe they have commercials like that. Turn, turn that off. And so he's saying, I don't want you guys to escape from the world. Like, this, this isn't, I know you guys are hurting, but we're not going to run for the hills and have a commune. Like, we're going we're gonna to stay and do what Jesus has called us to do and love our neighbor. There's a challenge in that, but I want you to count that joy, or that challenge is joy. And I want you to maintain a healthy heart in the midst of that. And you're going to maintain a healthy heart by knowing who Jesus is and what he's done. And don't deceive yourself in saying that it's all going to be easy. Does that make sense? How are we doing so far? You guys have been super quiet. Any questions? So, I love that we have two, like Ron and Danny both like demonstrate this by entering in and like providing beds for like yeah. these types of situations. And they're not just doing it from a religious standpoint, but hey, I want to care about them. And like it opens up doors to like share the gospel with them and tell them that they're loved and invite them right. like, to church. And it's just a beautiful picture of entering in and not just saying like, oh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think um, uh, to, to comfort most, I think most of us would pass the test in here. And I'm, you know, I say that like like because like apparently they're my kids, they're awesome, right? Like I love them so much, they would pass the test. But I mean that sincerely. And and so the 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 taking of the test, I think it, hopefully for us is an affirmation. Like okay, like. I am able to bridle my tongue. You know, I mean, we have people that are serving the, in the purest form like that. Like, we can feel good about that, right? So, yeah, so I hope you guys feel affirmation in the test taking, not condemnation. Does that make sense? So, 
Um, there's definitely a tension there because we can just want to be do it from a religious mindset could. of just actions, but there's both a you don't you never speak, but you're slow to speak and yeah. speak wisely and invite them into the bigger picture. Right. Yeah, that's good. Good stuff. Anybody else questions, comments? But you do. And there's the being peaceful, merciful, yeah. Because that, that's what I was thinking when he was saying that. Because there's, there's you could go in and you could fix so much, right? Speak into so much. And, yeah. Well, and that, the truth is you can't, only Jesus can. But in that moment, it's hard not to run through like a filter of judgment. And, you know, and so you're like, you're here to love and to serve. Yeah, that's good, Danny. Um. So, so knowing and doing, right? I mean, it's that simple. We know Jesus, and we do what Jesus has said. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who is simple. You are a God who is loving and gracious and merciful. Um, I thank you that you haven't given up on us. Um, I thank you that you have approached us in a way that allows us to approach, approach you, that you are peaceful towards us, that you're not wrathful towards us, that you're not angry towards us. Instead, you sent your son and that while we were yet sinners to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And by knowing that, Lord, we can live a merciful, loving life that betters our neighbors, that in its purest form cares for the orphans and the widows. And so, Lord, I just ask that we be people who would do that we wouldn't be content with doing nothing. We wouldn't seek comfort because it's the easier path. Instead, we would say we will sacrificially serve those whom you love and who you've called us to love. And so, Lord, I pray for the protection over each person here. I pray for their heart. I pray for their mind. Would you give them a healthy heart and mind and allow them to live out the gospel in the fullest thereof? So, Lord, I pray for your spirit to be with them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.